Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 2. If you're new with us this morning, or perhaps it's been a while since you've been with us, we are making our way through a series on the book of James. Here at Free Money, Free, we like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. And the reason why we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And it's important that you keep that in mind this morning, because we're coming to a passage that's a bit difficult, actually, in James chapter 2. Uh, just to give you a forewarning, we're about to head into the theological weeds here. And that's okay, as long as you don't get poison ivy, right? It's okay to go in the weeds sometimes. Uh, and I think, in fact, it's necessary. This passage, I think, is a crucial one in the New Testament, and it requires a lot of work to dive through it. So let me pray, and then we'll get to it, and we'll just ask that God will be gracious to us this morning. Uh, Father, we do pray. I pray. I pray for your help this morning. I, I've sensed the weight of this passage this week, because I know there's a reason why this passage has been debated probably more than almost any other passage in the New Testament. So I just pray that you would help this morning, that you would give me wisdom. If there's anything I say that is not consistent with your word, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But Lord, I do pray that you'd just be gracious and help us to understand this passage rightly. Lord, help us to come to this passage ready to receive what your word has to say, not what we think it should say, but what it actually says. So God, we just ask that you would be merciful to us this morning, that you'd help us to work through this issue of faith and works and grace and salvation. And to sort all that out, and to do so being consistent with what your word teaches and for your glory. So God, I'm just coming to you this morning and asking for your help. Please, Lord, help. Help me, the preacher, to be faithful to what your word teaches. Help those who are hearing to have ears to hear and to listen to what your word has to say. Lord, please help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So many years ago now, I attended the funeral of an extended family member. I can't say that I was particularly close to this relative, but I knew enough about him to know where he was spiritually and to know the type of life that he lived. More specifically, I knew that he claimed to be an atheist and was not religious in any sort of meaningful way. And on top of that, he was just kind of a hard guy. Although he certainly had some positive characteristics in general, he was angry and mean and intimidating. And in his last days, there was certainly no evidence of a softening of his heart. If anything, the hardness of his heart only seemed to intensify as he neared the end. In other words, there is no evidence to suggest that anything significant changed in his life prior to his passing. He seemingly died in the same way that he lived, with a hard heart and no acknowledgement of God. And yet, at the funeral service, to my great surprise, the pastor stood up and made it sound as if this deceased relative was now enjoying the presence of God. Apparently, at some point in his life, this relative had professed the faith in Christ. And so in the pastor's mind, that profession of faith was seemingly evident or sufficient to guarantee his entrance into the kingdom of God, despite the fact that this relative never seemed to bear any fruit from his profession. On the contrary, he lived a life that was completely contrary to the commands of Christ, and in later years even identified as an atheist. So in light of that, my question for you this morning is simply this. Was the pastor right to suggest that a mere profession of faith, absent of any accompanying works, was necessary or was sufficient to save this relative of mine? Now, in asking that question, I'm setting aside the possibility here that my relative had a deathbed conversion in the final few moments of his life. It's always possible that something like that could have happened, and for his sake, I genuinely hope that it did, because that would radically change this whole conversation. But assuming it did not, and taking the situation at face value, again, I would just ask this question, was the pastor right? Was he correct in suggesting that to have faith in Christ, or you can have faith in Christ without ever bearing any fruit? Is it possible to be a genuine Christian and yet have no desire to follow the commands of Christ? Is it possible to have a sincere saving faith but never, never actually put that faith in action? Or maybe to use the language of James, is it possible to have a real faith without any accompanying works? 
Based on our passage today, I think James' answer to that question would be pretty obvious. The answer is no. As James will repeatedly remind us in this passage that we're about to study, faith without works is dead. Now, in saying that, I recognize this passage that we're about to study is indeed one of the most debated and controversial in all the New Testament. Specifically, there are some serious questions as to how James' teaching lines up with the theology that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone and not by our works. And certainly part of my task this morning is to wade through those questions and make sense of what James is teaching in our passage today in light of what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. Because undoubtedly, in light of the rest of the New Testament, there's a complexity to what James is saying here that we must address if we're going to be faithful to put this passage in the overall context of all of Scripture. But having said that, the main point of the passage today is clear because James repeats it again and again and again. Faith without works is dead. It's useless, and as James clearly implies, it cannot save. That said, to unpack what James means, and importantly, to put it in the context of the overall teaching of all the New Testament, let's turn to the passage itself and let's get going here. So if you want to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word, James 2, verses 14 to 26. Words will be on the screen here shortly. You can listen as I read or you can follow along in your own Bibles. By the way, if you're needing a Bible, there are a few Bibles located on the chairs in front of you. You want to grab one? You can take that home too, by the way. James 2, 14 to 26 says this, beginning in verse 14. The Word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he's called a friend of God. You see, the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now again, I'm just going to acknowledge from the start here that this is a very debated passage in the New Testament. And specifically, as I alluded to earlier, it raises some serious questions about the nature of the relationship between grace, faith, works, and salvation. Even more specifically, it, pre- it prevents, or excuse me, presents some serious challenges because of what James teaches here in verses 14 to 26 seems to contradict some of what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. Namely, is salvation by grace alone, or as James seems to be suggesting here, are works a necessary part of salvation? To put my cards on the table from the beginning, I'll just say this. I don't think James is contradicting anything that's taught elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, I do think he's coming at things from a slightly different angle, and with a slightly different perspective, and thus has a slightly different emphasis in other New Testament writers like Paul. But nothing he says here, just from the beginning, let me say this. Nothing he says here contradict what, contradicts what Paul teaches, or for that matter, what any other New Testament writer teaches, or even what Jesus himself teaches. 
But having said that, given the controversial nature of the passage, I think it's necessary that we walk through some of the difficulties of this passage and explain why they're not actually contradicting what the rest of the New Testament teaches. It's one thing for me to say, I don't think James' teaching contradicts what the rest of the New Testament writers say. It's another to actually walk through the text and explain why I think that's the case. I think we need to take the time to do the latter, given the importance of the topic. But before we do that, before we frame James 2, 14 to 26, in the context of all the New Testament, we need to first let the text speak for itself. Because setting aside some of the difficulties, how does this square up with the rest of the New Testament? The point of James' passage in this teaching is very, very clear. James is wanting us to know that faith without works is dead. Or to say it more positively, genuine saving faith will be accompanied by good works. And we know this is the main point of the passage because James drives home the point relentlessly. Three times, he just comes directly out and says it. Verse 17, he says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's pretty clear that James wants us to understand faith without works is dead and useless. And it's clear because he directly tells us three times in the span of just 13 verses, faith without works is dead or useless. But more than just directly telling us three times, the rest of the passage is completely structured around this same theme. There are three sections in this passage and all of them point to that one theme. Verses 14 to 17, James gives an illustration to make this point. <clears throat> Excuse me, in verses 18 to 19, he gives a negative example to help us understand the danger of not living out our faith. And then in verses 20 to 26, he gives us two positive examples from the Old Testament to make the same point. Works are a necessary outworking of our faith. In short, then, everything James says in this passage is designed to communicate this one thing. Faith without works is dead. Genuine saving faith will be accompanied by good works. But to make sure you see that theme yourself, let's just take the time to walk through the passage here in the three different sections and show how each of these sections are pointing in the same direction. So section number one is the illustration found in verses 14 to 17. I want you to look first at verse 14 because verse 14 sets up the illustration found in verses 15 and 16. Verse 14 says this, What good is it, my brothers, <clears throat> if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So in verse 14, James asks two questions, and both are expected, given the way they're structured in the original language, they're expected to be responded to in the negative. So James asks the question, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The expected answer there is, it's no good. And then he asks a second question, also expecting a negative answer. Can that faith save him? The answer James expects there is no. And to demonstrate why that's the case, James gives what I think is a pretty brilliant illustration in verses 15 and 16. He says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So again, the illustration also comes in the form of a question that expects a negative answer. In verses 15 and 16, James asks, If a brother or sister is lacking food or clothing, and you merely tell that person, go in peace, be warmed and filled, which by the way, that phrase is dripping with religiosity. It almost sounds like a prayer. 
But James says, even if you have all this religious language, but you don't actually give the person what they need, what good is that? And again, his expected answer is, it's no good. Now, the brilliance of the illustration is that it's serving two purposes at one time. On the one hand, it serves as an example of not putting faith into action. To see a brother or sister in Christ in need, needing food or clothing, and to do nothing about it is the epitome of not living out your faith. But not only does the illustration serve as an example of not putting faith into action, it also serves as an analogy of the worthlessness of faith without works. In the same way that offering or not offering food or clothing is useless to the person who needs it, not putting our faith into action is useless. Which again is the point that James drives home in this summary statement of verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So again, the whole point of this passage is to communicate faith without works is dead. And in the first section, that's very clear. But it's also very clear in the second section, the negative example of verses 18 to 19. In verse 18, James sets up a dialogue with a theoretical adversary. We read this in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So the theoretical adversary in verse 18 is trying to argue, well, some have faith and some have works. And implied in that is that if some have faith but not works, that's fine. Or some have works but not faith, that's fine. But James has none of it. He's not having any of it because in the latter half of verse 18, he actually talks about no, genuine faith will show itself by it works. And in verse 19, he gives a negative example to illustrate the foolishness of thinking that you could have faith without works. Verse 19, he says this, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. As James accurately points out, the demons intellectually understand who God is. Throughout the Gospels, it's very clear the demons rightly identify Jesus Christ. As James indicates here in this passage, they even shudder at his power and his majesty. The word there actually conveys a deep sense of fear. They genuinely fear him. But their intellectual faith means nothing because they refuse to submit to the authority of God and they refuse to live in light of what they know to be true. Again, the point here is obvious. Faith without works is useless. If demons can have intellectual faith, if they can understand who Jesus is, then that type of faith alone will not save. Genuine faith must be accompanied by action, which is, again, the same point that James makes in the third and final section of the passage, the two positive examples from the Old Testament. Look at verses 20 to 26 here. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, the faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So in verses 20 to 26 here, James points to two Old Testament examples to make the argument that faith apart from works is useless. Now, the two examples that he uses from the Old Testament are radically different. Abraham was the patriarch of the faith and one of the great heroes of the Israelite people. Rahab, on the other hand, was a prostitute whom God just happened to use to save some Israelite spies from their enemies. But different as they may be, both of them put their faith into action, which is the reality that James is trying to emphasize here. 
Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac because he trusted God. Rahab was willing to hide the spies and thus endanger her own life because she trusted God. Both had faith, and faith was the driving force behind their actions. But the point is, their faith led to action. Which again, James is emphasizing in the last verse of the passage. As he says it in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So listen, I don't know how James could make this any clearer from our standpoint. What he's trying to communicate here is faith without works is useless. It's dead. Not only does he explicitly say that on three different occasions, but the whole structure of the passage is organized around this same theme. In the illustration of verses 14 to 17, the negative example of verses 18 to 19, and the two positive examples from the Old Testament of verses 20 to 26, James's overarching point could not be more obvious. Faith without works is dead. To miss that point, you would have to be intentionally looking the other way. A few years back, we went to the Black Hills in South Dakota for a vacation. I don't know if you've ever driven to the Black Hills before or to the Badlands, but if you have, then you know that there is seemingly a billboard for wall drug nearly every five miles on the way to the Black Hills. Now, for those who don't know, wall drug is, and I'm quoting from a website here, a drugstore, restaurant, gift shop, and tourist trap just outside of Badlands National Park in the little town of Wall, South Dakota. Now, we actually stopped at Wall Drug because our kids really wanted to try the five-cent coffee that was advertised on billboards all the way to South Dakota. And having stopped there, I can say this. First of all, they were not all that impressed by the coffee. And second of all, I was not all that impressed by the place itself. But I will say this. I was impressed by the sheer amount of billboards they distributed across the state of South Dakota. They are everywhere. In fact, I read somewhere there's over 300. You would have to be asleep at the wheel or not paying attention at all to miss the signs for wall drug. In the same way, I would say this. You would have to be asleep at the wheel of biblical interpretation to miss the point James is trying to make in James 2, 14 to 26. Because at every point in the passage, James is putting up a billboard. Faith without works is dead. Now, you may or may not agree with what James is saying, or you may question how James' teaching fits in with the rest of the New Testament. But it would be impossible to read James 2, 14 to 26 with sincerity and come to a different conclusion in terms of what he's trying to teach. He clearly wants us to understand faith without works is dead. Or again, to say it more positively, genuine saving faith will be accompanied by action. It will be evidenced in our good works. Now, having said all that, while the main point of James 2, 14 to 26 is clear as it gets, I think it's again worth acknowledging that the main point does raise some legitimate questions. As I said earlier, this passage is indeed one of the most debate, debated and controversial in all the New Testament. And the controversy surrounds the relationship between grace and faith and works and salvation. More specifically, James seems to be teaching here in James chapter 2 that works might be necessary for salvation, while other passages in the New Testament clearly teach the salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. So the question is, what gives? Right? Is James correct here in saying that faith without works is dead and thus implying, thus implying that a faith without works cannot save? Or is Paul correct when in Ephesians 2 he says that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone and not by so that no one may boast? Or are both correct and both are coming at the same issue from a slightly different perspective and thus coming with a slightly different angle. 
Now, I tipped my hand earlier, so this won't be surprising to you, but I fall into the third camp. I think the theology of James and the theology of Paul, for that matter, the theology of the rest of the New Testament writers, the theology of Jesus, in the end, it matches up. I think the differences can be explained when you look closely at what James is saying and what other New Testament writers are saying, and you try to understand what are they actually trying to communicate, and why are they coming at it with a slightly different perspective. All right, to explain what I mean, I want to compare two key New Testament texts on justification. One of them is from our passage today, is James 2.24. If you want to throw that slide up on the screen, James 2.24. All right, so we're going to compare James 2.24 to Romans 3.28. So I'm going to put James 2.24 up first, going to read it, then I'm going to put Romans 3.28, read it, and then I'm going to put the two on the same slide together so you can see them. All right, so James 2.24 says this, you see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. All right? So keep that in mind. Now Romans 3.28, if you want to throw Romans 3.28 on the screen. In a second, we're going to put the two up together. All right? So Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right? Now put both of them up there together. All right? So I'm just going to read them back to back. All right? You can see them yourself. These are exactly what's in the text. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's James 2.24, Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right. I don't know about you guys, but those two, th- those two verses seem to be saying the exact opposite thing. So how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? First of all, as a general principle, we can have confidence that any apparent contradiction in Scripture is just that. It is apparent. What I mean by that is it's not a genuine contradiction. It just appears to be a contradiction. Because the Bible is one book with one author, ultimately the Holy Spirit, we can be confident there's a unity between what James is teaching in James 2 and what Paul is teaching in Romans 3. But the question is, what is that unity? Right? How do these two verses make sense when they seem to be teaching opposite things? I think there are two key pieces of information that help us understand how James 2 and Romans 3 are not at odds. First of all, I want you to notice that in James 2.24, James points out that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I think that word alone is really important. I don't think James is suggesting that faith is insufficient to bring salvation. What he is saying is that faith alone, which I think in this case is a reference to a bogus faith, a sham faith, a fake faith, a faith that's not accompanied by works. He's saying that type of faith, a fake faith, is insufficient because it's not genuine. Hear this clearly. In James 2, 14 to 26, James is not arguing against the importance of faith, nor is he pitting faith versus works, nor is he suggesting that it's faith plus works that saves us. What he's actually doing more than anything else, I think, is this. He's warning about a fake faith that is not genuine a faith that is intellectual only, like the demons possess, and not one that's actually accompanied by a desire to follow God's commands. In other words, it's a phony faith that he's warning against throughout the passage, and it's that same phony faith that he's talking about in verse 24. So that's one key piece of information. James is talking about a counterfeit faith in verse 24 that does not bring justification. Second key piece of information, I think James and James 2 And Paul in Romans 3 seemed to be using the word justified to mean slightly different things. Now, as is always the case in the English language, words can mean different things depending upon their context. If I talk about a slice, for example, I could be talking about a piece of pizza. 
or I could be talking about a certain type of soda, or I could be talking about a serious flaw in my golf game, which I possess, by the way. All right, context determines the meaning. And in James 2 and in Romans 3, it seems that James and Paul are using the word justified to mean two slightly different things. Commentator Douglas Moo helpfully explains this way. He says this, in Romans 3, Paul uses the word justified to refer to the initial declaration of a sinner's innocence before God. In other words, the moment of salvation. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 3. At that moment, when we're justified, we're talking about the moment of salvation, the instant that we are saved. But in James 2, Moo argues, James is using the word justified to refer to the ultimate verdict of innocence pronounced over a person at the last judgment. Or as one Bible scholar colorfully put it, Paul is acting as an obstetrician. He's talking about how life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, how the Christian life grows and matures and ages. Or to use one more analogy from another commentator, in Romans 3, Paul is emphasizing that pre-conversion works cannot save. But in James 2, James is actually arguing or emphasizing the necessity of post-conversion works. Works as an evidence that we've been genuinely saved by the grace of God. So hear this. I don't think James and Paul are in disagreement. I think they're just emphasizing two slightly different things, using the word justification in slightly different ways. Now, having said all that, I think it's important that we now try to put the puzzle pieces together. And we try to explain what is the relationship then between grace, faith, works, and salvation. Clearly, there's a tension here. We can see the tension as we look at these two verses. And as we read elsewhere in the New Testament, we can see, okay, there's some tension. And although, although that tension is not evidence of a contradiction, I think it's important for us to do some biblical theology. What I mean by that is taking a step back from the passage itself and asking what themes do we see in the Bible as a whole and trying to make sense of the tension and put the puzzle pieces together. So to that end, I just want to give you three statements here regarding the general nature of the relationship between grace, faith, works, and salvation. Again, what I'm attempting to do is putting all the pieces of the Bible together to explain what is the relationship. All right, so three statements to that end. First of all, statement one, we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8.9 says it very clearly, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So as Ephesians 2 plainly teaches, we're not saved by our own effort. We're not saved by our own merit. We're not saved by our own works. We are saved solely by the work of Jesus Christ, period. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. Jesus died the death that we were to die. And it's only by faith in Jesus Christ, only by faith in Jesus Christ, that we can be set free from the penalty of sin and credited with his righteousness. Hear this, no matter how good a person you are, no matter how many times you go to church, no matter how much money you give to charity, no matter how many old ladies you help across the street, you can never do enough to earn the favor of God. Your sin is far too great. His holiness far too majestic. The idea that we could ever bridge the gap between us and God with our own merit is an absurd notion. It'd be the equivalent of trying to long jump across the Grand Canyon, which is not possible, by the way. And to be clear, I think James would agree with this assessment 100%. Even in the book of James, he talks about the implanted word being the thing that saves us. It's not our works that save us. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the work of Jesus Christ. This is what rescues us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, not by our works. 
That's the first building block in understanding, okay, how do these things all tie together? But there's a second statement that I think gives some more clarity. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, but not by faith that is alone. I think this is what James is getting at in our passage today. Genuine saving faith, he's arguing, will result in a changed life and in good works. And here's why. To have genuine faith in Christ is to put your trust in Christ. And that trust will be evidenced by a willingness to obey his commands. A willingness to obey his commands. Furthermore, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and thus we are in Christ, we have the Spirit of God. That's what Romans 8 teaches. And if the Spirit of God is indwelling us, the Spirit, hear me clearly, will produce fruit. The idea that we could have a genuine faith in Christ and thus have the indwelling Holy Spirit and not be changed, that idea is ludicrous. I mean, think about it this way. For the first 19 years of my life, I did not know Christ, and thus I didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. But when by the grace of God, and it was the grace of God, my eyes were open to the truth that I needed Jesus, and I turned to him in saving faith, from that point forward, I've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Do you think it's possible that I could not have the Holy Spirit for the first 19 years of my life and then have the Holy Spirit and not be changed? Of course the answer is, it's not possible. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will be changed. To have the Holy Spirit is to be changed and it'll be evidenced in the way that we live. Again, think about it this way. If I bought a house and there was a small tree outside the house that had just been planted by the the previous owners and they told me that tree is an apple tree. And if over time that tree grew and it didn't look like an apple tree as it got older and eventually it started dropping acorns instead of apples, at some point I'd have to come to the conclusion, this is not an apple tree. It might be an oak tree, but it's not an apple. Over time, the fruit will demonstrate the reality of the tree. In the same way, I would say this. If you say you have the Spirit, but you don't bear the fruit of the Spirit, something doesn't add up. Now, one of the reasons why I think we have a troubled understanding this, understanding the relationship between grace and faith and works and salvation, is because we have a tendency to separate all the processes of salvation out. We say we're justified by faith in Christ alone, but sanctification comes through our effort in the Holy Spirit. And eventually we're glorified when Christ returns, as if these are all three separate acts. But I would say this, in the New Testament, all three of them are under the one umbrella. The umbrella is, what does it mean to be in Christ? If you are in Christ, you will be justified, and you will be sanctified, and you will be glorified. It is inevitable. And I think that's what James is getting at here in James 2. He's not arguing that we're saved by faith plus works. He's merely pointing out that works are a necessary evidence that we have the Holy Spirit. If you have genuine saving faith and thus are in Christ, it's inevitable that there will be a fruit that you produce because the Holy Spirit will produce that fruit in you. To claim to have saving faith in Jesus, but not to put that faith into action, is like saying you're an apple tree but only dropping acorns. To be in Christ is to have the Holy Spirit, and if we have the Holy Spirit, we will bear fruit. By the way, lest you think that James is on some sort of theological island here, that he's the only one who teaches this, you need to understand that this teaching is everywhere in the New New Testament. In Matthew 7, Jesus talks about a healthy tree bearing good fruit. In John 15, the passage that Jim read earlier, Jesus talks about the one who abides in Christ will bear fruit. And in fact, he warns, if you don't bear fruit, you'll be thrown in the fire. In Ephesians 2.10, which is the verse right after Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not, not from yourselves. It's by the grace of God, not by works. The very next verse, Paul then talks about good works being prepared ahead of us, or being prepared ahead of time for us. 
In other words, what I'm saying is this. James is not crazy. James is not on a theological island. Now, he's saying things a little bit differently than Jesus or Paul would, but he's getting at the same idea. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, but not by faith that is alone. Works are necessary evidence of God's saving faith. Which brings us then to the third statement where I'm trying to tie this now back to James 2.24. In the sense that genuine saving faith will be evidenced by works, then we could say that works are a necessary part of justification. Now let me be very, very careful to clarify what I mean. In suggesting that works are a necessary part of justification, I'm not using the word in the same way that Paul does in Romans 3. I'm not talking about the initial declaration of innocence that comes at the moment of salvation. That is solely by the grace of God and has nothing to do with anything we've done. What I'm talking about, though, is justification in the sense that Paul, or excuse me, that James is talking about it here in James 2, the vindication that will take place on the last day. And what I'm saying, and more importantly, what James is saying, most importantly, what the Holy Spirit is saying, since he's the one leading James, is that to the degree works are necessary evidence of God's saving faith, then works are necessary for final vindication. Our works, hear me, do not save us, but they indicate we've been genuinely saved. To borrow an analogy from John Piper, when you go to a concert or a sporting event, what is it that gets you into the sporting event or the concert? It's a ticket. But it's not really the ticket that gets you in, is it? What actually gets you in is the money that you or someone else paid in order to get that ticket. In other words, it's the money that gets you in. The ticket, though, is a necessary evidence that the money has been paid. In the same way, works don't get you into heaven. They're just a necessary evidence the price has been paid. Now, in this analogy, Christ is the one who paid, paid the money, right? He paid the punishment. He fulfilled all righteousness. He did the work. Our works, then, are just a necessary evidence that Christ has done the work. And in that analogy, then, our works are the ticket, but Christ is the one who paid the money. So what James is saying, and I want to be clear on this, the reason why faith without works is dead is not because we earn salvation through our works, it's because a genuine saving faith that's been accomplished by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit will result in fruit. To argue otherwise is to to suggest that you're an apple tree when you're just dropping acorns. Now having said all that, I think there is a question that remains here, isn't there? If James's point in this passage is that faith without works is dead and that genuine saving faith will be accompanied by good works, I think the one remaining question this morning is simply this. What do we do with this? How do we respond to a passage like this one? And my answer to that is threefold. First, in light of James 2, 14 to 26, I think we need to reflect on our own lives and evaluate the sincerity of our own faith. Notice in verse 14 how James phrases the question. He says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In that verse, James does not say, what good is it if someone has faith but doesn't have works? That's not the question. Instead, he says, what good is it if someone says he has faith? In other words, the person James is concerned about is not someone who actually has faith. It's someone who claims to have faith but actually does not. So the self-reflection question then for every person in this room, myself included, is simply this. Is that you. Is that you? Listen, if you're the type of person who claims to know Jesus and you can put on a good show on Sunday morning, you can talk the right talk, you can say the right things, and yet you live a completely different life the rest of the week, then this passage should give you some serious pause. Over the years, I've known all kinds of Christians. Some even have great positions of leadership in the church. I'm guessing you know people like this too that they, on the outward, appear to have it all together. They appear to know all these things about Christ, and yet, 
Eventually it comes out they were living a completely duplicitous life at home. Maybe they were abusing their wife or ignoring their kids. Maybe there's an addiction to pornography or alcohol or drugs, acting unethically in their business. Maybe they're, generally speaking, just ignoring the commands of Christ. Let's be clear, that type of person who is not repenting of their sin and continuing to do whatever they want to do is not a wayward Christian. To use language of James, they just have a faith that's dead. Right? They're, they're claiming to know Christ, but they don't actually have saving faith. Genuine saving faith will be accompanied by action. Now, let me be clear in saying this. We're not talking about perfection here, are we? We're not talking about a perfect life, but we're saying there will be a genuine desire to please Christ and a genuine repentance when we blow it. Listen, if those marks are absent in your life, it's worth asking, do you have a living faith? Or is your faith dead? Is your faith dead? By the way, in a group this size, I'm sure that there are some who would fall in the category that James is describing here. And so I'm just pleading with you this morning to consider, do you have a living faith? And the reason why I'm pleading with you to do so is because James obviously thought it was a really big deal. And so I think we should think it's a big deal too. So the first question is, reflect on your own life. Second application, I think, is this. In light of James 2, 14 to 26, we need to be more urgent in our evangelism. Given where we live, my guess is that most of your neighbors and coworkers and non-church acquaintances would claim that they're followers of Christ. But in light of James' standard here for a living faith, how many of them do you think actually know Jesus? Now, I'm not going to get into specifics here, but there are a couple of people in my life, they don't attend church here, but they live here in Fremont, and they claim to know Jesus. And yet recently, they've started publicly doing some things that just flatly contradict the Word of God. And it's actually been really discouraging for me on one level because I thought maybe they knew Christ. But on the other hand, it's reminded me of the urgency of the task. Just because a person claims to know Christ doesn't mean anything. It just means they claim to know Christ. My role as a Christian is to simply point them to the good news of Christ and not assume that just because they claim to know Jesus, they actually are Christians. So I think there's an urgency here that we should be pleading with our neighbors and friends, do they actually know Christ? Lastly, though, I, I think we can say this. In light of James 2, 14 to 26, we need to see the intimate connection between faith and works. Again, hear me clearly. James is not pitting faith versus works here. He's simply pointing out that works will flow out of genuine faith. So the connecting question that I would have for you is this. Is faith the engine that drives your good works? If you're doing quote-unquote good things, but doing them for the praise of your own name or your own benefit, then you're missing the forest through the trees. Genuine good works will never be independent of faith. They will always be driven by faith. We should be motivated to do good and to be kind and to love others, not because we should or because someone puts it as a bumper sticker on their car, but rather we should do so because Christ's love compels us. So are your works driven by your faith? James would say they should be, right? Our faith should be put into action. At school and at work and at home, we should live out our faith, and we should do so because we're motivated by the great love of Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for us, and because of who he is, we want others to know him, and we want him to be glorified. So listen, in summary here, I just want you to know, I understand the complexity of the discussion we're having in James 2, and I understand that we've been diving deep in the weeds today. I understand that this is one of the most controversial passages in all the New Testament. I also understand that some of you may not agree with everything I've said today. Believe me when I say this, I have felt the weight of this passage this week. And if I could have picked another passage to preach on, if I'm honest, I probably would have. But listen, just because it's tricky, 
Just because there are landmines on every side does not mean that we should avoid the topic. Because hear me, too much is at stake. The last thing I want for any of us is that on the day that we die, some preacher would stand up and say something about us that's just not true. In other words, I don't want any person in this room to be deceived into thinking they have a genuine faith when in fact their faith is dead. Because this is what James is warning us about. But hear this, and this is the encouraging news. If you are in Christ, you will bear fruit because this is what the Spirit does. So church, my encouragement to you this morning is simply this. Look to Christ and then live for Christ. To do anything else is to run the risk of having a dead faith. Look to Christ, live for him, for his glory and for your joy. Let's pray. God, I just confess that this is a tricky passage. And again, if there's anything that I taught this morning that was not accurate or consistent with your word, I pray that it just fell on deaf ears. But Lord, I pray that we would not look the other way at James' challenging teaching here. We tend to want to let ourselves off the hook a little bit when it comes to living out our faith, but James is not letting anyone off the hook here. He wants us to know that genuine faith will be accompanied by good works, and so I pray that we would take what he teaches here seriously, that it would indeed cause us to reflect on our own lives, making sure that we have a genuine faith, that it would give us urgency and evangelism, wanting to share Christ with our neighbors around us who might think they know Jesus, but is not displayed in the way they live. And I pray that it would also encourage us to live out our faith on a daily basis. Please, Lord, help us to put this passage into action. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the concluding challenge I had for you this morning was just to look to Christ and live for Christ. And one of the ways that we as a church can look to Christ is to take the Lord's Supper together. Because at the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we could be set free from our sin and so that we could be rescued and justified in the sense that we're declared innocent and then live in light of what he's done. And so it's fitting that, talking James 2, 14 and 26, that we now come to the Lord's table together and we remind ourselves, look 